grace, mercy, and peace to you. From God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If there's any humor in our lessons this morning, it's that God must shake his head in wonder over our view of death as some kind of finality. When he knows that just a breath, just a word from him, can raise dead bones, dead nations, and even dead bodies to life. The miracles of Jesus in John's Gospel begin and end with a family, one at Cana in Galilee, the other at Bethany in Judea to the south. In the first one, he was at a wedding, at the other a funeral, arguably life's uh, gladdest and saddest hours. At one, he changed water into wine. At the other, he triumphed over the tomb, the grave. Both miracles were humanly impossible. The first revealed him as Lord of creation, the second as creator of life. In today's gospel, he receives an urgent message from a family in Bethany, a town located just outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. A man there was sick, a man he was well acquainted with. The man's name was Lazarus. His sisters were Martha and Mary. You might remember Jesus' visit with them earlier, the time that Martha was busy with being the good hostess while Mary sat at Jesus' feet. The Lord had to remind busy Martha to stop and smell the roses, that there was only one thing truly needful in life, and that was him. And as long as he was there, she should take advantage of it. The message he receives has a sense of urgency about it. Lord, the one you love is sick. He's a good friend, and the situation is desperate. The sense is that if Jesus comes before it's too late, he can heal him. Now at the time, Jesus was maybe a couple of days away, so you can picture Lazarus' anxious sisters, hoping that the message will, will find Jesus in time for him to get back to them before it's too late to help their brother. He'd helped others before, often complete strangers. And they truly believed that he could help his friend as they waited at their brother's bedside. But Jesus doesn't make it in time, and Lazarus dies. In fact, Jesus delays coming in order that Lazarus does die. Even his disciples were perplexed when Jesus told them, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man might be glorified through it. If you were with us last week, you might remember the story of the blind man that Jesus healed. And the question the disciples asked was, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was blind? Jesus told his disciples sin had nothing to do with it, that he'd been born blind for just that moment, so that God might be glorified through him when Jesus healed him. It's the same underlying theme in today's lesson. They'd already lost a day in the time it had taken the messenger to reach Jesus. But then Jesus delays two more days before beginning the day's journey to Lazarus' home. The disciples would have been mystified, but they also knew that the Lord's enemies in Jerusalem were waiting for a chance to kill him. So maybe they figured that was uh, why he delayed. Finally, Jesus says, let's go to Judea again. The disciples remind him of the danger. But Jesus tells them, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples think it just means that Lazarus is napping, resting to get over his illness. And so Jesus clarifies the situation. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. And off they go to Bethany. Mary and Martha must have been devastated that Jesus hadn't come in time. He was their friend. But when you read this story, you have to read it like you read the story of Job, knowing that all the tragedy that's allowed to befall him has purpose. 
and then it's going to end with some kind of restoration. Mary and Martha don't know that part of the story yet. They're in mourning when Jesus arrives. The body has been laid to rest. The house is crowded with friends offering the sisters their support, sharing in their grief. It was customary in those days to mourn for seven days. Now, Jesus' disciples were still clueless. They didn't know that although death had intervened in Lazarus' story, that death wouldn't have the last word. John tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And the word John uses here is the word for love that means unconditional love. So it's more than just a casual friendship. Anyway, by the time Jesus arrives, all hope is gone, at least all human hope. Lazarus is in his grave, entombed now for four days. When word comes that Jesus has arrived, Martha runs out to greet him. <clears throat> if only you had been here, she says, he would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She half believed that just like Jesus had raised others, he could bring her brother back from the dead. But then we hear that her words may have outrun her faith. And Jesus builds on that, that half faith. Your brother will rise again, he says. I know, she said, he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She believed in the resurrection. In the Old Testament, Job confessed that exact same faith. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Martha believed in the resurrection of the believers on the last day. Jesus wanted her to believe even more. I am the resurrection and the life, he told her. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, he asks her? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the same Martha who had been admonished by Jesus for being so busy with hostess duties the time he'd come to dinner while her sister Mary sat at Jesus' feet listening and learning, but no more. She'd learned that one thing needful. If death is the final answer to the sinful human state, if that's all there is for us at the end of this ride, then the devil has won. And God's answer to sin, the penalty for sin, is death. But he didn't box himself in. See, his answer to death is resurrection. Martha runs back to the house with the good news that Jesus was near. In her grief, Mary had evidently missed the first cry. So she pulls Mary aside and says to her, the teacher is here and is calling for you. So Mary runs out to meet Jesus, followed by the whole entourage of mourners. They thought she was running back to the tomb, but she was really running to the Savior. She falls at his feet, and grief and tears overtake her. And not only Mary, but John tells us that Jesus, too, shed tears. Now, we don't often see such deep emotion displayed publicly by Jesus in the scriptures, but he cared for his good friend Lazarus, who now lay dead in a grave. Even the hope of the resurrection Mary had expressed, or Martha had expressed couldn't prevent their crying. God hadn't created us to die as Lazarus had. Physical death is a cruel and sad result of sin. The entire scene troubled Jesus. Where have you laid him, the Lord asked. They brought him to the tomb, and even Jesus wept silently. 
Now, the Greek word that John uses here for weeping was different from the one he used for Mary and the others. Their weeping was the one associated with mourning and, and was usually open and uncontrollable. Jesus shed tears, we're told by John. But the word he uses doesn't indicate that same outward display of the mourners. Jesus wept for his friends. Not unlike he weeps for us today in our sorrows, in a fallen world so unlike the one that God had created it to be before it was spoiled by sin. Or how he weeps for each and every person who still doesn't know him as the resurrection and the life. The Jews saw his tears and concluded he was weeping for Lazarus, just another close friend weeping at a grave. But knowing what Jesus was about to do, we know his tears meant much more. Never forget that Jesus was God, but he was also true man. He knows what it's like to experience grief and sorrow. And when we go to him in prayer, in our own grief, Jesus knows what we're going through. He understands and he sees. But maybe there's another reason Jesus wept. You know, as true God, he could also see what they couldn't see. Lazarus in paradise, surrounded by the saints of God, the whole host of angels. He'd entered that rest beyond the reach of all earthly woes. He was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, with now perfect people in a perfect place where time stands still, in the very presence of God the Father. In just four days, he may not even have had time to ask all his questions or to finish being shown around and introduced. And now Jesus was going to call him back to a world of sin and anguish and pain. Maybe in a way Jesus did weep out of sorrow for Lazarus. He orders the stone blocking the entrance to the tomb rolled away. Martha reminds him that her brother has been dead and decomposing for four days. But he turns to Martha and he prepares her for a little outside the grave thinking. Didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And he offers up a prayer that through this miracle they might believe he had come from God. And then he commands, Lazarus, come out. And he does, still wrapped in his smelly grave clothes. And they saw and they believed. Didn't I tell you? What an awesome story this is. There's a contemporary song that imagines a conversation Jesus might have had with a newly resurrected and probably very surprised Lazarus. It's called It's All Right. <clears throat> and part of it goes like this. So it's all right, you can open your eyes now and through the shroud hear my voice over the crowd. This is not for you, but if you knew all it will signify, you'd know why I cry. Breathe in, hear your heart beat again. Feel the rags fall away, touch your skin. I know you didn't ask for this. It doesn't even feel like home. But now that you've completely known, lift up your head. And when it's time to leave again, you'll be more than ready to. Because this time when you leave, my friend, I'll be there to welcome you. So it's all right. You can open your eyes now. What must it have been like for Lazarus to have been brought back from death to life, to wake up to life after life after death. After seeing what lies beyond the veil of death with your own eyes, how thrilled would you be to be brought back to this world? Not very thrilled. We don't really know what happened to Lazarus after that or what he was like before or after he was raised from the dead, <clears throat> apart from a series of 
ancient Christian traditions that seem to go in completely opposite directions. One says that Lazarus, learning of the plotting in Jerusalem against him uh, as the living proof of Jesus' miracle, fled to France, where he became Bishop of Marseille and was later martyred. Another says that he and some other believers were put out to sea by angry Jews in a boat without sails, uh, without oars or helm. And miraculously, he ended up in France where he made his way to Marseille, converting people on the way. It says that he died again at the age of 60, martyred under the persecution of Roman Emperor Domitian, and was buried in a sarcophagus with the inscription, the four-day Lazarus, friend of Christ. His supposed remains were removed to Constantinople in the year 890 by the Byzantine emperor, who in return built a church in Larica uh, for, for them uh, that still survives to this day. Another says that he and his sisters fled to Kidion on the island of Cyprus, where he was later ordained by Paul and Barnabas, serving for years there as bishop and an example of the Christian life and hope of resurrection to the people in that place. Legends and traditions. But what we know from scripture is that Lazarus had been raised for a bigger purpose than just a second chance at life in this world. He became an instant celebrity. He was a living, breathing testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. Imagine him walking around, people asking to hear his story one more time. You know, he's the man who had died once and was born twice from the womb and the tomb. His old life was gone. He was back. It was unlikely he could have ever picked up from right where he left off after he, before he got sick. And the saddest part, aside from poor Lazarus having to wait a while to get back to heaven, was the reaction of the church leaders in Jerusalem when they heard the news about what Jesus had done. Instead of running out to Bethany to take a knee and worship the Lord, they began plotting against him to kill him and also plotting against Lazarus. They had their own ideas about how the Messiah would come and, and what he would be like. They'd put God and his promises of salvation into a, a box of their making. And Jesus, true God and true man, lover of all mankind, peaceful, poor, friend of sinners and the downtrodden, just didn't fit in it. You can't put God in a box. It's such a powerful story because it wants to tear the lid off our own vision of what can and can't be done when we try to put human limitations on God today. You know, when, when the limited view of life some people see as being sold is the only view of life there is. Clearly, that isn't Jesus' view. He went so far as to show believers like you and I that we can believe and we can dream even outside the grave if we'll just let God be God. It's a reminder that his power and his desire for us transcends anything we can imagine. Even Martha, who had known Jesus and who had known the scriptures, didn't have that outside-the-grave mentality that Jesus had. Her resurrection was a future resurrection. Jesus says, in effect, you know, why wait until then? Why not do it now? This is the kind of radical thinking that needs to pervade the church today if it's going to survive things like the health crisis facing us. And it will survive. It's always survived the terrible, sometimes brutal challenges that it's faced. We're learning to do church in new ways. We're learning to give in new ways. And that'll turn out to be a good thing. And we'll be all the better for it. Lazarus had been changed by the power of God. And so have we. 
That's what Paul's talking about this morning in our second lesson. Listen again to what he's saying to all those who've come to faith in Jesus. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He's saying you've already been given a second life. Now, maybe not in the physical sense like Lazarus, but certainly spiritually. You became a new person in Christ before the waters of your baptism were even dry. This lesson asks a, a hard Lenten kind of question. What are you doing with that second life? What are you doing with it? Are you using it to glorify the God of second lives and what you say and what you do and how you give, how you think, how you plan? We are resurrection people, children of God, blessed by God and heirs of his promises for this life and the next. No limits, no boxes. Just a little outside the grave thinking is all it takes to be the people of God and the church God wants us to be. No past to condemn you, no chains or grave clothes to bind you. A brand new future waiting for you to grasp that will take you down new paths with new ways of thinking, all the while trusting the God who gave us that new life to lead us. And then one day to lead us home. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We'll take a moment now to confess our Christian faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. 